If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. From museum cabinets to hammer horror movies and horrible histories, there's no more instantly recognisable symbol of ancient Egypt than a mummy. And of course, the mummy of Tutankhamun is the most famous of them all. But in turning the mummy into a cultural icon, have we overlooked what these human remains, and we need to remember they are human remains, can tell us about past cultures and beliefs? What can we learn about ancient Egyptian ideas about death, the body, and even the self, by looking at the body of a long-dead pharaoh. I'm Ellie Cawthorn, and in this new History Extra podcast series on Tutankhamun, we're marking the centenary of the discovery of the pharaoh's tomb by exploring his life, death and legacy. We'll travel back to the ancient empire the boy king ruled over and investigate what his dazzling treasures and mummified remains can tell us about ruling and dying in ancient Egypt. In today's episode, we're going to be zeroing in on the most important thing in the whole of Tutankhamun's tomb, his mummified body. We'll be revealing what ancient Egyptians believed happened after death, exploring mummification processes, and following Tutankhamun's mummy on his somewhat unexpected adventures in the afterlife. So to tell us more, I welcomed back Egyptologist Dr Chris Norton. And I began by asking him something that's long fascinated me. Why are we still so obsessed with mummies? When we think about the ancient past, or or the past of any kind really, the essence of what is compelling about it for us is the is a lot of the time is the human aspect. And that is often in some sense missing in that we can't meet people, you know, particularly if we're talking about history of the, of the far distant past. I mean, if you're talking about, you know, who captained Arsenal in the 1971 FA Cup final, I, I, you know, Frank McClintock is still alive, so I could go meet him and that would be amazing. And, and we're, we're sort of searching, I think, for that human aspect of things. There are photographs, so, you know, we can see photographs of, you know, great characters from history going back a certain way. And before that, we can look upon realistic portraits. And then before that, it all gets much more vague and distant. Mummies are the actual people. They're the actual dead bodies. And I think some part of what is sort of compelling about them is, you know, uh, 
dead people. But I think more than that, actually, I, th- I think it's the fact that it is those people. I think for all the golden bling that comes to us from Tutankhamun's tomb, in the end, the, yeah, the king himself was actually there in the middle of all of that. And when his body was unwrapped, there's this moment where Howard Carter and his team are able to actually see him. It really is him. Okay, maybe not quite in the condition that, you know, he would have liked us to remember him in, but he's really there. These are real people. And I think that's something that's worth bearing in mind throughout this episode. Looking at mummies alongside other historical artefacts in glass museum cases might seem totally normal to us today. But we need to remember that these are in fact human remains who were buried with a great deal of care and museums were never their intended destination. So let's turn now to that incredibly careful and considered Egyptian burial process. But before we jump into the intricacies of mummification, let's start with a crucial bit of context. What did the ancient Egyptians believe happened after death? The Egyptians believed in an afterlife. They believed that if everything was done right in the earthly life, the appropriate rituals are performed at uh, the time of death, just shortly afterwards, just prior to burial. If the burial, and and it's important to say that that is an important part of it, it, the burial is then done correctly, all the appropriate rituals, um, all the appropriate equipment and appropriate place, and provided the setting is appropriate, then the individual live will live a, a kind of um, idealized hereafter, and as far as we can tell, for the Egyptians that that meant a kind of ideal version of their earthly life. Certainly, for the more ordinary people, a kind of ideal pastoral agricultural idyll um, of river fields, you know, etc., with lots of other people to do your work for you. So if the aim of the game was to make it to these sunny, verdant uplands of a nice, relaxing afterlife, then why mummification? How would that process help people get there? The belief was that if you survive into the next life, then you then you inhabit essentially the same body or some form of the same body that you have in your earthly life. So one of the essential aspects of the uh, process of getting to the to the next life is the preservation of the body. And when it came to the preservation of bodies, the ancient Egyptians were masters. The Egyptians, it seems, most probably had observed that the environmental conditions where they were actually allowed for some degree of natural preservation of the body. And perhaps very early on, this is lost to us now, they observed that in some cases, bodies could apparently survive more or less intact after the death. And that perhaps conjured up in their minds the idea that, um, oh, well, the body survives. Perhaps perhaps that coincides with our idea that the spirit and the individual survive, even if we can't see them now from the earthly world. They're they're probably out there somewhere. So, yes, and of course, this leads to an extremely, after a while, elaborate set of rituals and very practical actions which allow for the survival of the physical body. By the time that we get to Tutankhamun, who died in Egypt's 18th dynasty, how elaborate had that process um, of preparations for death become? Well, Tutankhamun reigned, uh, let's say, very roughly 15 or 1600 years after the 
the, the Egyptian civilization comes into being. So well over a thousand years uh, later, and it seems as far as we can tell that mummification begins more or less very approximately at the same time as Egyptian civilization comes into being. So it had had over a thousand years to develop by the time of Tutankhamun. And I think it's important to perhaps understand the process of mummification in uh, in two different ways. One one is all about uh, the sort of spiritual and and uh, rituals being performed on the mummy, which don't I don't actually have a, any great practical component. A good example of this is a ritual that was called the opening of the mouth. This ritual is actually depicted on the walls of Tutankhamun's tomb, being performed on the dead pharaoh by his successor, I. And this is where, symbolically, an, an act is performed on the mummy using a particular tool called an ad to open the mouth of the mummy in order that it can breathe. Now, of course, by this point, the mummy is embalmed and it's wrapped, so it wouldn't have been possible to actually get out the mouth and open it. Of course, it's, it's all you know rigid as well. But there's this idea that the mouth is being opened and then the mummy could breathe and then you know the body is revivified and, and uh, lives on. So that's kind of perhaps one of the more sort of symbolic acts. At the same time, there are these very practical, almost medical acts, which ensure the actual survival of the body. And by the time of Tutankhamun, this medical side of the process was extremely well developed. And the Egyptians, it seemed, at the time of Tutankhamun, were very able embalmers and very clever in the techniques they used to purify and dry out the mummy, which would allow it to survive for an extremely long time. Obviously, the mummy of Tutankhamun still survives to this day uh, in such a way that the form of the individual is preserved to a very striking extent. And of course, that is why mummies from ancient Egypt are one of the sort of great icons of that civilization for us. The Egyptians are, you know, more concerned with this and, and better at it than human beings um, ever were before or since. So now I think it's time to delve into the mummification process in more detail. So anyone squeamish listening, consider this your content warning. Inevitably, we need to start proceedings at one crucial moment, the moment of death. First of all, I suppose at the moment of death, relatives, friends, those who are close to the individual have to contact the people who are going to supervise the mummification process, which is what comes next, there would also need to be other provisions made, such as the provision of burial equipment. Actually, a lot of those arrangements would probably already have been underway. But still, you know, at the point of death, particularly if if it's unexpected, then, you know, there's a lot of scrambling around to to be done. Contact the people, make sure they know, make sure the tomb is ready. Um, but, But more than anything else, make sure that the embalming can take place and there were specialist people to undertake this. So the body would be taken to the embalmers and they would set to work in the, in the process of cleansing, embalming, wrapping the mummy, ready for the burial some weeks later. While so much of ancient Egypt remains a mystery to us, historians have actually managed to get a fairly decent idea of what embalmers got up to. And this is thanks to a couple of sources. Firstly, of course, we have the mummies themselves – hundreds if not thousands of which have been extensively studied over the last 200 years. And another useful source is an account of the mummification process by the 5th century BC writer Herodotus. But something to bear in mind here 
is that he was writing fairly late on in Egyptian history, nearly a thousand years after Tutankhamun, in fact. The crucial essence of the mummification process is to remove anything from the body that is going to cause it to, to, to decay as far as possible. That meant the removal of certain of the internal organs. The brain, for example, was removed and that there was a particular tool that would be used to, and it would be inserted up the nasal cavity into the skull. And it seems as though the, um, the embalmers more or less sort of scraped around and the brain was sort of mushed up and then pulled out through the nose. So that wasn't considered a terribly important thing to keep. Then, as I say, certain of the internal organs from the torso, if you like, um, specifically the liver, lungs, stomach and intestines, were removed via what, when, when they got really good at it, was a, was a very careful and actually quite small incision in the left, the individual's left, and the sort of lower part of the torso around the area of the stomach. And they were clever enough to remove those specific organs from that particular place. Those were then cleansed, dried, and separately embalmed and then kept separately from the body. So they obviously were aware that there were, there were things inside these organs, um, certain of the um, characteristics of these organs would potentially cause the body to rot away from the inside. So the removal of the organs there, that was about preserving the body. It's its a practical thing. It's not about those organs being particularly meaningful or symbolic in some way, do we know? They came to be kept in a very careful way, those organs. So um, for most people who could afford it, they were, as I say, subjected to their own sort of individual mummification process, if you like, um, purification, embalming, wrapping. They were then usually placed inside the tomb, again, for those who could afford it, inside a set of four jars. So four, four sets of organs, liver, lungs, stomach, intestines, each one of those wrapped and placed inside a jar. Into Tinkarmoon's burial, these four jars are shaped like mini gold coffins or coffinettes, and each is sealed into a calcite canopic chest with stone stoppers carved into the shape of human heads. Like most things in the tomb, this canopic chest is incredibly ornate, decorated with the figures of goddesses for protection. Interesting though, isn't it, that the brain was removed, but that wasn't kept in a canopic jar separately, that was just chucked away. Yes, that speaks to what to us seems like a rather strange idea of the Egyptians, which is that the essence of your sort of yourself internally, your thoughts you know, your passions, your desires, your ideas are manifested in the heart. So that is the very essence of you. For that reason, the heart was left inside the body. And whereas the brain, which to, to which the Egyptians apparently didn't, you know, attach any great significance, was, as you say, yes, unceremoniously mushed up and thrown away, <laughs> just chucked in a bin, yeah. So the organs have been removed, some destined for delicate preservation in a canopic chest, others destined for the gutter. What next? The final stage in the process, which is the longest one, is the drying out. And this is, this is essential, again, of course, when, when there's water of any kind inside the body, and that allows for the potential growth of little nasty microscopic things that could begin to eat away at the body. So whereas if it's dried out, 
then those things can't survive and they can't eat away at the body. So, so the drying process, it seems, probably lasted around 40 days and the Egyptians achieved the drying not by just putting the, the body out um, into the desert, but by um, applying to it natron salts, a particular type of salt which is very absorbent of moisture. And it's found in a wadi which is named after it, wadi natrun, wadi natron, uh, in the Egyptian delta. And this was applied in crystalline form to the body so it was essentially sort of covered in it and that would have the effect of drawing the moisture out of the body and apparently after approximately 40 days the body is considered to be dry the natron would then be removed and the body could be then embalmed encased in in a particular cocktail of oils to 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 at this point um prevent anything from getting in and then wrapped ceremoniously wrapped and then finally it would be ready. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Well, almost ready. Because no royal mummy would be complete without a bit of bling. Tutankhamun's mummy, I think, probably was adorned with more stuff than any other that's been found from from Egypt, and you know, and and more stuff is something we can apply to just about every aspect of Tutankhamun's burial. So he was, um, of course, embalmed, of course, wrapped within the wrappings. A number of items of jewellery, extremely fine jewellery made of extremely precious and valuable materials, extremely finely crafted. Those were sort of worked into the mummy wrappings a number of objects which had a kind of amuletic properties, so magical properties that would help ward off evil spirits or help in some way the king to make his journey to the next life safely. He was buried with um, two daggers, which might speak to some personal fondness that he had for warfare or, you know, or just carrying a dagger around with him. But more likely, I think, these were again to equip him with what the Egyptians believed was a kind of dangerous journey to the next life. Even underneath the wrappings, he was wearing a beaded skull cap. He was wearing collar of variously beads, gold drop pendants, Horus falcon clasps. There's then the most famous object from the tomb, which is the death mask, um, placed over the top of the mummy. There were what we call mummy bands, little pieces of gold, all tagged together, uh, so running in a kind of strip along the front of the mummy uh, with perpendicular kind of bands running across the sides of the body and then all of this put into an assemblage of coffins inside a sarcophagus inside a nest of shrines you know no space left in the tomb unfilled with bling so it's a really complex and involved job this process of finding the specific organs that need to be removed doing that so intricately the wrapping the salts the oil everything the job of an embalmer was was a real skill then 
yes, they they would have had to have had quite an in-depth knowledge of human anatomy, particularly when it comes to sort of um, rummaging around inside the body. And to what extent they were aware of all of the ins and outs and causes and effects of the processes that they were using, uh, you know, through a probably through a process of trial and error over many centuries, they got to a point where they were really very, very good at this and very successful. I think, though, it's also worth saying that it it seems to it seems to just be coincidence. But um, people who are specialists in um, uh, in the research of mummification into mummification now, I think, often w- many of them would say that the period of Tutankhamun is a high point for mummification, and mummification continues for many centuries after Tutankhamun's time, and we can see that there is constant innovation over that time. So it became, for example, quite fashionable during uh, the later New Kingdom into the 21st dynasty to try and solve what it seems they saw as a problem of the embalming process causing a lot of the soft tissue underneath the surface of the skin to sort of disappear causing you know the face to collapse or the you know the um the arms and legs to look very spindly so in order to achieve a more realistic effect uh, particularly in the face they started experimenting with with packing material underneath the skin which actually for us now that it makes them look rather sort of ghastly and bloated uh, you know, so it's a, when I say that, you know, the Tutankhamun's era was kind of high point in mummification, that's a subjective judgment being made by us today based on what we see. But I think the, perhaps the more important point is the, the Egyptians never stopped tinkering with this. They never stopped trying new things in an attempt, I guess, to have, you know, the deceased individual literally just look exactly as they did at the point they died and no, no, with no changes at all. I mentioned earlier that historians have learnt about the mummification process through studying ancient bodies and reading ancient accounts. But in recent years, there's also been some more hands-on research conducted into the process. Experiments have been done and a really extremely compelling piece of research was undertaken about 10 years ago and covered by a documentary made by a British company British production company, um, but the but the research was being done by scientists from the University of York, and the lead scientist, a man called Dr. Stephen Buckley, extremely good Egyptologist, um, paleoanthropologist, wanted to test, in particular, a theory he had that at the time of the 18th dynasty, again, time of, time of Tutankhamun, later 18th dynasty, uh, the embalmers were using a technique, a particular technique, um, which involved rather than placing crystalline natron over the body, they created a solution of natron and water, liquid liquid natron, if you like, and completely immersed the mummy in a bath of this uh, natron solution. Uh, because um, he had observed natron crystals within the soft tissue of certain mummies which and couldn't see any other way that it could have got there. Anyway, in order to test this, he wanted to mummify a human being and so advertised for somebody to come forward um, who would be prepared to offer their body up to medical and Egyptological research. And a taxi driver, whose name was Alan, came forward. He was sadly terminally ill 
um, and wanted to assist with the research. And so his body was mummified. And I believe, I perhaps recommend just people seek out the film, but that certainly by the time the mummification was completed and it was successful, his body had changed. And that, that uh, um, Alan's mummy is now, I believe, in the Royal College of Surgeons. It is going to continue to be monitored for you know for years and years and years to see how how the just you know environmental factors um, change things and no doubt the passage of time has an effect. So now we've covered the mummification process, let's talk more about Tutankhamun's mummy in particular. When it was found in 1922, Carter and his team didn't have access to CT scanners or. DNA analysis that's used to study mummies today. Yes, their toolkit was a bit more rudimentary, but they were still able to figure out more than you might expect. Well, there was um, a a government um, anatomist involved with the Antiquities Service Department um, at that time, a man called Douglas Derry. And I suppose the science of examining mummies... Uh, human remains, um, you know, whether that be simply bones or, uh, uh, you know, an intact, articulated, mummified individual, was reasonably well developed. Um, So anatomists like Derry were already able, even though this is a century ago, to say certain things about the individual, such as what what the gender would have been, what the age at death would have been. Um, They would be able to see simply from a visual inspection whether the individual was suffering from any kind of illness or injury that would have manifested on the surface and Tutankhamun had suffered from some kind of injury to uh, his left knee. Derry would have been aware that the feet exhibited some some signs, perhaps of malformation. And he was, and he was able to draw conclusions, as, uh, as, uh, as, as I was suggesting, um, about Tutankhamun's gender. We already knew that. Um, his age also, which we didn't. So, so this is the first point at which we sort of learn that, oh, goodness, this is, a, this is actually a very young man who must have come to the throne at a very young age uh, and ruled in his teens, essentially, but not for much longer, which is, of course, now absolutely one of the essentials of his story. But we didn't really know that until the mummy was examined. But in order to study Tutankhamun's mummy, Carter's team first had to get it out of its coffins. And that turned out to be a much more difficult job than it first sounds. It seems that as a sort of final part of the process, once the mummy had been placed inside the coffin, a a further quantity of embalming oil was then poured over the mummy. And this had the effect of gluing, once that embalming oil had dried, gluing the mummy into the coffins. So Carter had a devil of a job extracting the innermost coffin from the middle coffin because those are sort of glued together and then um, removing the death mask from the mummy and then the mummy from the inside of the coffin which I'm not sure I've quite got the sequence of that right but anyway there were lots of things glued together and Carter there was no secret made of this at all Carter gets a very bad press for this and I think it's unfair actually once you sort of get to the point where you decide, okay, we have to separate all these things, we have to remove the mummy because we have to study it, et cetera, et cetera. Putting aside all the arguments for and against that, if you've got to do this, then there has to be a way of doing it. And he, first of all, placed the mummy outside in the, in, in the desert sunshine in the Valley of the Kings in the hope 
that the oils would simply melt, at least to the point where he could remove everything. That didn't work. So eventually they heated up knives. They use hot knives to uh, to, to melt and help sort of chivy the... Uh, the mummy um, away from um, all the cultural material. And it, it seems likely that that did some damage. Having said that, probably not nearly as much as Carter has been accused of over the years. And wrenching the pharaoh's mummy out of its coffin wasn't the only thing that Carter's team did that might have modern experts howling in despair. It was felt by Carter no doubt by most, if not all, of those around him, that it was important that as part of, you know, understanding what he had discovered, that the mummy would have to be unwrapped and the the mummy should be examined. And we learned a lot about history and about Tutankhamun in that process. But I'm not sure that at the time there was too much regret about what was essentially an unrepeatable experiment. And now, of course, we are much more aware of what is lost in that unrepeatable experiment. Once you've taken the bandages off, you can't put them back. Certainly can't put them back in the way the Egyptians would have put them back. And for for the most part, up until very recently, those bandages would just have been chucked away. I think it's true to say that we are much more aware, uh, only in really quite relatively recent times, of the importance of the, the wrapping process and of the wrappings themselves. One scholar in particular I can think of Professor Christina Riggs from the University of Durham has drawn a lot of attention to the fact that for the Egyptians, wrapping not only human beings in uh, burial, but actually other objects of, of um, ritual or other importance and significance was, a, was actually a very important aspect of Egyptian culture. They did it a lot. And actually a lot of objects in the tomb of Tutankhamun were wrapped, but they were more or less immediately unwrapped, you know, and the wrapping sort of discarded. And um, it's... You have to look quite hard now for any photographs of those objects in their wrapped condition, clearly because the the belief was well that's the wrappings are not important. get rid of the wrappings we don't that's you know we don't care a bit like when we unwrap our Christmas presents, we chuck all the wrapping paper away immediately when you can imagine archaeologists in the future, I always wrap my because i'm I'm tight, I always wrap my Christmas presents in recycled newspaper. Archaeologists in the future will be much more interested in the newspaper than the crappy presents I'm giving my relatives. I think it's also fair to say that in well, not just fair to say, but I think it's important to say that in many cases, the human remains were themselves were also discarded because they were not considered to be terribly important. Of course, that didn't happen in the case of Tutankhamun because he was a king and we know about him. He was an important historical individual. But lots of, I mean, lots of the mummies of anonymous individuals from the past were tragically just disposed of one way or another. That is one of the most... I think, shameful episodes in the history of Egyptology. But since Carter's first analysis back in the 1920s, the study of Tutankhamun's mummy has progressed significantly. The mummy was subsequently investigated again in the 1960s and 70s with the use of X-rays. So obviously X-rays are non-invasive and in fact allowed the researchers to see inside the body and therefore to see a lot more than Carter and Derry had been able to see in 1925. And in more recent times, and I think it was 2006, the mummy was CT scanned, actually in the Valley of the Kings. Um, specialist equipment was brought into the valley, the mummy was brought out of the tomb and put into the back of a medical vehicle with a CT scanner in it. Um, and, and it was CT scanned. And of course, that has given us by far and away 
the most information we've ever been able to gather about the mummy, again, without doing any damage to it. And you can hear more about what those studies revealed about the boy king's health and potentially his death in episode three of this series. But scientific study isn't the only thing to have happened to Tutankhamun's mummy in the century since its discovery. In fact, historians now believe that the pharaoh's body was also embroiled in more nefarious activities. Carter took this decision that the mummy should stay in the tomb. Clearly the Antiquity Service agreed with that. Ultimately, of course, it would have been their decision and not his to make. And it was there not visible to visitors and only really disturbed in any sense, uh, at least, you know, as far as we know, officially, um, at the times when official anatomical investigations were undertaken. Some very, very interesting research has been undertaken in the last few years based on observations that people have made about the appearance or the condition of the mummy at the point of those various different investigations. So, you know, the 1960s, 70s and 2006 investigations all acquired images of one kind or another of of the king. And they showed various things. So, for example, by the time of 2006, a large part of the ribcage on the left-hand side of the king's left was missing. Um, Other parts of the skeleton on the left-hand side of the body were missing a chunk of the pelvis, Um, For example, um, the king's uh, penis, which was present at the time he was discovered, appeared to have gone missing. And it wasn't really clear what had happened. Very good photographs were taken in Carter's time off the mummy. So And and comparison with those photographs is what allows us to say, oh, goodness, look, by 2006, things seem to have changed. All these things seem to have come to be missing. There was a thought that the damage that we could see by the time of 2006 was Carter's responsibility. And all those stories of hot knives and, you know, the mummy being difficult to free from the coffins, Carter had to basically break it and, and damage it really badly in order, to, in order to examine it. Despite the fact that, he, you know, he tells us about the hot knives, he doesn't say anything about any other kinds of damage. The other thing which people have noted is that there were certain cultural items left on the mummy at the time it was redeposited in the, in the tomb by Carter because it was simply impossible to remove them. So there was a very close-fitting um, skull cap that the king was was wearing. It was composed largely of extremely small beads, and these had come to be, the whole thing had come to be completely glued onto the king's skull as part of the embalming process. There was no possibility of removing it. There was also the remains of a a collar, a jewelled collar, which again, glued, stuck fast onto the king, and so it was left by the time of the later examinations, those things had gone. So things like the ribcage is a bit difficult to, to explain. How did that happen? The king's penis being missing, I mean. I mean, there's some strange people out there, but really. The beadwork and the jewels, you know, that's a rather easier to explain. Um, if you think that somebody would be interested in stealing them, and then, hey, presto, a few years ago, some of the jewels from the collar came onto the antiquities market or something that looks, you know, so similar to these that it, they, you know, it was concluded by uh, French Egyptologist Marc Gabold that they must be the same things. Anyway, so the conclusion is that these must have been 
these must have been stripped from the mummy at some point, and that in fact, of course, you know, as a result of theft, we can't know this, but the likelihood is that th- this also explains the damage to the ribcage and the pelvis uh, and possibly even the missing penis as well, which, in f- by the way, in fact, was retrieved. It was found just to have been detached. It was there, in fact, but it had become detached. I mean, sad story for the king, nonetheless. So that's the explanation. And we can't know the dates of this. There are, of course, no official records. It's not in anybody's interests to sort of cough up and say, oh, yes, well, actually, I was the security guard that day and, you know, blah, blah, blah. So there's there's kind of silence on this. But So he's had an extremely interesting last century or so, actually, and not an entirely happy one. After a century that's seen him being left to melt in the desert sun, tested in a CT scanner and manhandled by grave robbers, where is Tutankhamun now? Carter felt very strongly that the mummy, after the examination and after um, the cultural material had almost all been removed to the safety of the Egyptian Museum. I think it's important to say there was never any possibility that it could be left in the tomb because its safety and security couldn't have been guaranteed. Um, But Carter was very keen that the mummy itself should remain in the tomb if that was at all possible. So uh, it is still there to this day inside the tomb. So Tutankhamun's body remained in its intended resting place. And interestingly, while visitors could go and see the tomb, unlike in many museums, the pharaoh's body was hidden from view inside one of his coffins. Actually, I think for the time, that was an extremely sensitive way of doing things and a very nice compromise, I think, in between the position people would adopt if, you know, those those people who believe that you absolutely shouldn't violate graves of any kind from anywhere at any point. And at the other end of the spectrum, those people who just absolutely have no regard at all for human remains, who just want the, the stuff or the information who couldn't really care less or, you know, or would prefer that the mummy go on display in the Egyptian Museum for thousands of people to see. I think it was a very nice and very sensitive um, in-between. Just to bring that story up to date, um, the mummy, since the CT scans, has now been placed inside a climate-controlled, atmosphere-controlled glass case within the tomb. So it is actually better preserved now. It's not just left outside in the, the regular environment in the tomb. It is visible, but it's covered from neck down to the feet with a linen drape. So essentially, you can see the king's head and you can see the king's feet. And and that's it. And again, I think that probably meets the majority of people's, addresses the majority of people's concerns when it comes to the display of human remains. Next time, we're bringing this series to a conclusion with a look at how Tutankhamun's image and story have been reimagined over the last century. From pop culture to blockbuster exhibitions, we'll look at how Tutankhamun has shaped the way we think about the ancient world and even Egypt today. Many thanks to my expert for this episode, Dr Chris Norton. Chris is an Egyptologist whose books include Searching for the Lost Tombs of Egypt, Egyptologists' Notebooks, and the children's book King Tutankhamun Tells All. Thanks for listening. This podcast series was written and edited by me, Ellie Cawthorn, and produced by Brittany Colley. Additional checks on this episode by Rob Attar and Daniel Adamson.